0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, Editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to November's edition of ReCharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in this month. First of all, I'll do a quick recap of the month's news from Battery Materials Review. And then for our interviews, we've gone all in on nickel this month with two fascinating exploration and development stocks, both of which have got prospective nickel sulfide deposits. First up is Robin Young, CEO of AIM-listed Ammo Minerals. is looking to develop the Kudmane nickel sulfide deposit in Russia's Far East, which also boasts byproduct copper, cobalt and PGMs. The company produced a PFS earlier this year and is carrying out further feasibility work now. Our second interview is with Scott Williamson, MD of ASX-listed Blackstone Minerals. He talks in detail about Blackstone's highly prospective polymetallic to project in Vietnam and also gives a flavour for its exciting exploration portfolio in Canada and Australia. But now on to this month's news and features from Battery Materials Review. This month's first feature article is on electric vehicles. The slowdown in Chinese EV sales has caught lots of people's eyes and has raised concerns for many about the durability of the EV event and hence the battery material event as a whole. We're not so worried because we think that there's a strong likelihood that the engine of the EV event will shift to Europe in the medium term, given the very supportive emissions legislation which starts to come in in Europe over the next few years. Looking at the number of new models planned, and particularly considering the lower prices of some of those new models, suggests to us that EVs are starting to move towards the mass market in Europe, and as a result we should see some stronger demand growth going forward. This month's second feature article covers the travails of the lithium market, particularly the Western Australian spodumene producers. While the situation continues to look tough in the near term, our shipments to inventory ratio analysis does suggest that there could be some light around the corner the corner in this case, unfortunately, only being the middle of 2020. There's a fair amount of news flow this month, so as usual, I'll just pick out the high points. The more the lithium industry evolves, the more I think the London Metal Exchange is barking up the wrong tree with its intended lithium contracts. Lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide are just moving more and more into the realm of specialty chemicals, and I actually think the LME is doing the industry a disservice by trying to treat lithium chemicals as a commodity because they very clearly are not. Moving on to nickel, and there's lots of fun and games in the nickel market at the moment. The Indonesian nickel ore ban is going to keep things tight, as is the closure of the Ramu mine in PNG on environmental grounds, and exchange nickel inventories are getting down to near-critical levels, particularly considering the huge growth in high-nickel battery production this year. In the nickel space, I'd also flag Independence Group's decision not to go ahead with the feasibility study on its IGO process, to convert nickel sulfide concentrate directly to nickel sulfate. It instead decided to launch a hostile offer for panoramic resources. Given that the PFS on the processing indicated that capital cost for the project would be around $530 million Australian dollars and the price it's offering for panoramic is $312 million, you can perhaps understand management's thinking in this situation. In lithium development, there's a welcome dose of conservatism from Sigma Lithium Resources' feasibility study on its Brazilian hard rock project, with the study targeting only a 60.4% lithium recovery based on dense media separation. Despite this very conservative recovery forecast, the project is still in the lower realms of the cost curve on a CAIF-China basis, and capital costs come in below 100 million US dollars there are only eight sets of drill results this month, with Gallon Lithium's Pata results to stand up, and there are seven resource upgrades. In the financing space, it was another pretty dismal month, with only $60 million raised over the whole of the battery materials space, 50% of that in the graphite sector. Our analysis of the type of funds raised shows a significant increase in stake sales this year compared to equity and debt raisings, presumably indicating the distressed nature of many stocks. In the downstream space, there were further raw material offtake announcements, but apart from that, the focus was mostly on EVs. Tesla missed its Q3 delivery target, but then recorded better-than-expected Q3 results that surprised the markets. Unfortunately, other EV makers didn't fare so well, with BYD warning on 2019 profits and reporting that its NEV sales were down 34% year-on-year in September alone. There's an interesting contrast in approach between two Japanese automakers reported this month. We report that Honda has speeded up its electrification plans in Europe after strong demand for its first hybrid SUV, while Toyota has decided to roll out its first high-volume battery EVs in China, delaying their European launch for up to two years. There's a lot of momentum on clean air legislation in Europe at the moment, We report on the city of Brussels' plan to ban petrol and diesel vehicles by 2035. It's one of 13 major European cities that plan to ban both petrol and diesel. At the beginning of November, the German government agreed to increase cash incentives for EV sales to as much as €6,000 per vehicle. However, the big issue in Europe is and remains charging infrastructure. But there is starting to be positive momentum in that space as we report further in this issue. In stationary storage, a report on storage battery fires in South Korea concluded that inadequate monitoring and protection systems were to blame for a spate of fires, suggesting no material issues with the batteries, which is a positive outcome for the South Korean battery makers. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Nobel Prize awarded for the invention and development of lithium-ion battery in October. Congratulations to all involved. In our materials ranking this month, nickel remains at the top of the tree, despite its 3% correction, while cobalt and vanadium lose two places each on weaker market activity. Lithium chemicals remain welded to the bottom of our ranking, and absent a significant restocking event, we just don't see any catalyst for them to move higher in the near term. September was a mixed month for equities, with significant profit-taking in nickel and cobalt following their strong performances in September. There was a short squeeze in Australian hard rock lithium producers, which led to an 8% uptick for a hard rock lithium basket. But again, the real winner was our downstream basket, which rose 15% during October. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me, or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interviews now. I'm very pleased to welcome Robin Young. He's CEO of AIM-listed Ammo Minerals. Robin, welcome. Thank you. So Ammo is looking to develop the kuhn nickel sulfide project in the far east of Russia. Can you tell us a little bit more about the project, please?
1: Kunmane contains about 1.2 million tons of sulfide nickel. The average grade of this deposit that we've drilled out over the last decade is about 0.75% nickel. It also contains byproduct metals like copper, cobalt, platinum, and palladium. The project itself is among the largest greenfield nickel sulfide deposits that have, been, that have not been developed within the world to this point in time. And technologically, it's also been proven that we can use classic flotation recovery of the metals, and that's that the product is well-suited to generate a market-ready concentrate for sale on the international markets. Physically, we're well-located. We are adjacent to the three largest nickel-consuming nations in the world, which are China, Korea, and Japan, the product itself will allow us to generate a class one nickel. And what's important about this is it's a highly desirable source of nickel sulfate. And this is key in the use, in the manufacturing of electric vehicle batteries. And that's projected to be a burgeoning market in the near future. At this point in time, what we're seeing is that there's about 1.4 billion commercial and passenger cars on the road. And our coupon project is projected to produce enough nickel to make about 13 million 50 kilogram batteries. Today, there's only about 2% of the world's batteries are considered to be green. And we're trying to replace the internal combustion engine, which produces about three tons of CO2 per year. So we're sitting with a very good product. We have a very green footprint that we're looking at participating in. And we're sitting in the, the center of some very good international market, and uh, also the world's largest consumers.
0: In terms of infrastructure to get your product out to China, what have you got?
1: What we have is is uh, a rail system that is fairly well developed inside of Russia. Once our product is on the rail system, it can either go to the east towards Vladivostok, which is a port that is readily available for delivery into Japan, Korea, and ports of China we can also go west and by going west that would take us all the way into st petersburg now there's a big difference in the distances but what really is important to understand is that the trains that are that are bound eastward are pretty full whereas trains that are headed westward are relatively empty so there's there's some price breakdowns that indicate that that delivering into the european market may be Is as efficient as delivering into the Asian market itself. There's new bridges that are being built across the Amur River from Blagoveshensk area in particular into China. So the doorways are being swung open through what's called a, a Far East Russian initiative to incentivize companies to invest in the Russian Far East itself. As for development of additional infrastructure, the main aspect of our operation will be the construction of about a 300 kilometer long road. And it'll be a one lane wide gravel road, which we'll we'll control traffic on. And we will supply the mine site with fuel consumables, as well as transport about 400,000 tons of concentrate down that road per year to the rail side. Those are our two biggest infrastructure tasks. And we'll be generating power on site through the use of Caterpillar generator sets. So those are our three key components. And uh, the road is a a very important task for us that we're looking at very closely right now.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. So at the beginning of this year, you published a PFS for the project. Can you just talk us through the highlights of that?
1: What we're looking at on the project itself is about a $570 million capital expenditure. That includes the components of everything that's on the site and what we call off-site capital expenditures. And that would include obviously the access road and an upgrade to a rail station to allow us to offload our concentrate or upload our concentrate to the system and transport it to Vladivostok or possibly even St. Petersburg. Um, mobile mining equipment is also included in this. We're anticipating open pit and underground operations. So at this point in time, the total ca- initial capital cost figure is approximately $570 million. And in our calculations, what we've done is a that there will be no support from any of the Russian governmental agencies, which we'll address in a little bit, where in actuality, there is a great deal of interest that would possibly reduce this $570 million. So over the course of the time, we're going to mine about 647,000 tons of nickel that'll be delivered into the market. And our average cost to mine a ton of ore is about $23.04 per tonne bringing our total cost to generate, say, a, a ton of payable nickel to about $8,540 or about $3.87 per payable pound of nickel. So the dynamics of those operating and capital cost estimates indicate that we have a net present value at, at this point in time that approaches about $614 million U.S. dollars. Now, that's, that's a 10, discounted at a 10% which is typical of assets located in in Asia itself. We've taken a look at upside, downside, plus or minus 25% for operating capital cost estimates. And uh, obviously, uh, we're looking at paybacks in the order of, of two to three years for the configuration itself. So when we take a final look at the numbers today, what we see is in a concentrate sale basis, our break-even nickel price is about $6.16 a pound, whereas the most recent pricing as of today was about $7.40 a pound. Long-term consensus pricing is $8 a pound, with Wood McKenzie even projecting as high as $10 within the next five years. So we're, we're comfortable with the numbers we're seeing right now, and we believe that we've built a very
0: conservative model for assessing the potential of the project. It's fair to say that this project is highly leveraged to a rise in nickel prices. Yes, it is.
1: And one of the things about being highly re- leveraged to, to nickel pricing is that we are looking at generating a nickel concentrate. And nickel concentrate payable schedules are tightly fixed to the London Exchange metals prices. So a few cents move up in the nickel price can net you tens of millions uh, increase in your net present value. So it it is it is an extremely leveraged project when you when it comes to long term and near term pricing of nickel.
0: So you touched on this earlier, but um, do you get any support from the Russian government in terms of taking the project forward?
1: Absolutely, there is what what uh, we collectively inside the company call the Russian the Far East Russian agenda, and this is a program that has been put together by Vladimir Putin. And it's to help develop the Russian Far East, which consists of eight states. Amor itself is one of those eight states. And, and what they are wanting to do is to increase international investment inside in, into this area of Russia. They're looking at a possible 6% growth in GDP for the region. That's their objective. It's ambitious. But what they have done is they have created four very specific areas of investment potential where a company can benefit. The first one is, is that they have actually removed the net profits tax of 20% for the first five years of the operation, and then it's going to be 10% for the next five. They've also done a substantial reduction in the metal, metal recovery tax, and which is 8%. Initially, it starts out at zero, and then it's Linearly increases until year ten, where it is at ten percent. Social taxes are also removed from the payroll taxes of employees if you uh, agree to signing up for what's called a regional investment project, which is the best way to go for investing in inside of that part of Russia. And the fourth is also fuel credits. We're looking at say a ten percent discount on fuel costs because it's a uh, Far East development project, and it's also a mining project. So these direct financial components are very, very good for developing the project itself. Then, in addition, there are uh, uh, three specific funds that have been created to allow for grants to be given and for low interest rate loans to be provided for specifically infrastructure development. The 300 kilometer long road that I had mentioned earlier um, is going to open up timber it's going to open up a uh, placer mining grounds potential exploration of additional nickel projects gold projects all of this is is done through these low interest rates and and lowered interest rates and also for the grants that would be included in the project itself generally what you can anticipate is that working with these agencies you can see a depending on on which one, um, you can see anywhere from uh, a 10% of the total capital project investment being granted, and that those monies would be available to use in say construction of the road itself. So we have been working very very diligently with uh, various federal agencies, which are tied to strategic projects, which we are strategic, and with the state and local ministries to make sure that we uh, can take advantage of of the skill sets and also begin to train up people for the, the thousand men thousand man camp that we would require for actual building of the operation itself a great deal of incentives have been been placed in front of us and made available to us and this is work that we just need to continue working and pursuing
0: okay thank you so nickel as we've discussed a number of times on the podcast seems to be one of the key winners of the battery event in the near term how long would it take you to get this project into production
1: what we're looking at is the end of 2023 would be a reasonable target date for us. We have a lot to accomplish. Um, we are working on a, a TAO study right now that's due in December of next year. There'll be final permits and licensing can then proceed on the construction and the development of the operation itself. So we are, we are looking at, say, circa 2023 end of for being in production at that point in time. We are also seeing that, that the long-term nickel projection prices at that point in time are in the order of 9 to $10, which we have used $8 in our study work. So we could add substantially to
0: the project coming online at that point in time. Okay, so it, it sounds like you could come on just in the sweet spot. So what do you see as the biggest risks for AMA going forward?
1: To sum it up in one word, it would probably be a recession. There is an international trade war that is going on between the United States and China. What that is doing, though, is there's there's upside potential in that. It is driving Russia and China into more deals, cross-border deals. We also see the potential of price volatility. That's one that can never really be controlled. Although we are seeing as much as a $12 per pound nickel price out in, say, 2025. So not having Wall Street's journal. Two years hence, it's hard to predict, but I think that we're looking at international markets as as playing the key role in our greatest exposure at this point in
0: time. Okay. And then on the other side of that, what do you see as the most important catalyst for the stock over the next 12 to 18 months?
1: As we move forward through the the tail, we're going to be able to identify additional areas of upside potential. Um, We did release a PFS in February of this year. We touched on, on the ability of us generating a copper concentrate, a standalone concentrate, which we had not included in this study. That in itself would add substantially to our ability to finance the project through potential streaming agreements for a for copper product itself. Um, we are working with a company called GiproNickel on this, and Gipro Nickel is a wholly owned subsidiary of Norilsk, and they're very skilled crew when it comes to nickel and copper concentrate generation we have that we also are taking a look at ways in which to reduce our total capital expenditure we do know that that uh, in our capital cost estimates we use the most expensive items we used caterpillar equipment when in all actuality we could probably use bellows equipment which is 30 percent cheaper but both of these organizations provide leasing agreements, so we don't actually have to stump up the initial capital for purchasing a large mobile mining equipment fleet to produce, say, 6 million tons a of year of, of ore and an additional 15 to 20 million tons of waste. So all of these options are available to us, and we'll methodically work through them as we're working through the tail, which is due for delivery in
0: December 2020. Okay, great. Obviously, you speak to investors quite a lot. What's the most important factor about a project that you don't think investors grasp currently?
1: I think that probably all of our study work has really been done on an extremely conservative basis. There's a phrase in the industry, never fall in love with your project. That's when you begin to to make mistakes and you underestimate costs and overestimate profitability of the project. Our entire team has worked on banking studies for independent consulting companies, and that's been very valuable to us. And so in the case of where I had mentioned possible leasing of equipment, we've all decided that we would, we would opt to, capital, to estimate our capital costs using, say, Caterpillar equipment. It is the most renowned and also, coincidentally, the most expensive equipment in the world. There are companies like Komatsu and Bellows itself that produce lower costs. When we took a look at estimating the cost to to move a ton of rock, we did not utilize any discounts for the fuel because we're a mining project. We've used today's pricing, which when you buy in bulk would be a lot less. So every step of the way, when we thought there was a definitive approach to to possibly reducing costs, we always use the most expensive one. So we've tried to be extremely conservative in this study. And by by undertaking that approach, it makes us uh, far more comfortable with the results that we've been reporting at this point in time, which is in the order of in excess of uh, $600 million net present value on the project. We're pretty pleased with that number.
0: That's great. Robin Young, CEO of AIM-listed Amu Minerals. Thanks very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you, Matt. And moving on now. So I'm here with Scott Williamson, who's MD of Blackstone Minerals. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So to kick into the questions, you've got a really interesting range of projects. You've got some cobalt exploration in North America, nickel development in Vietnam, and also gold and nickel exploration in Australia. The Taikoa project in Vietnam is front and centre among those. Could you just give us a little bit of background in terms of what attracted you to that project?
2: Yeah, no worries. So we started the company with gold and nickel exploration in Western Australia and very quickly we sort of moved into the battery metal space and and so we headed over to Canada looking at the cobalt in uh, British Columbia. And through that process of exploring for cobalt, we started to build some relationships with some of the end users particularly in south korea and through those relationships we sort of we were ahead of the game really with a uh, i suppose this move to high nickel cathode chemistry so it was uh, it was these relationships that sort of about 12 months ago that we sort of started uh, looking around for nickel sulfide assets and and that's why we sort of was landed on this vietnam asset because it it's that type of geology that's very I suppose, has that potential for large tonnages of nickel. So it's a magmatic nickel sulfide. And and there was it was that potential to, to sort of for these end users to potentially lock in security of supply over a number of years that really attracted to us to this asset in Vietnam. So we've got some great geology. It's that particular type of geology similar to Jinchuan up in China and Norilsk in Russia that has that potential to really, um, I suppose, access a significant amount of nickel. So it was that transition into high nickel cathode that really pushed us towards this asset in Vietnam.
0: Okay. and, And as I understand it, it's sort of a brownfield asset. Can you talk a little bit about how much has already been pumped into it? Yeah, no worries. So
2: previous owners operated the mine between 2013 and 2016 and unfortunately for them, that was some of the most difficult nickel price environment we've seen in the past 10 years. Through that process, they've spent over $130 million on capital infrastructure. So that's a, a great starting point for us. So as a, an existing concentrator, we have a 250-person camp. We've got a, a, a modern mechanised underground mine built to an Australian standard. So this is, this is a mine that's been built as if it was in Australia or Canada. And it's been built to the standard that, that we're used to in Australia. So it's, it's, a, yeah, it's been built by Australians to an Australian standard. And so that gives us a really good platform to leverage off. And, and I suppose the key part of that story being that the previous owners didn't send, put any money into exploration. So the whole time they were operating, there was no exploration done to firm up the next resource or reserve ahead of the mine life. So they started with a five-year mine life. I actually mined it in three and a half, and that that whole period there was no exploration. So our core business being exploration, we're really excited to really un- unlock the geology and but but we think that there's a ten to twenty year mine here and um, and through the through our our strength
0: in in exploration we we can show the market that very very quickly. Okay, thanks very much. So a lot of people won't be familiar with Vietnam as a mining jurisdiction. Is it mining friendly? The reason why there's not as many foreign
2: investors in the mining industry is because there is this tariff on concentrate. So for for nickel concentrate, you're paying a 20% royalty straight to the government. And the reason being is that similar to Indonesia and, and other jurisdictions like Philippines, the government is really keen to, I suppose, push miners down to, into the downstream processing. So they want to keep the jobs in country, which is so we're, we're looking at, at working with that that sort of strategy and actually developing a downstream processing facility which would allow us to remove that tariff so there is this sort of push towards downstream processing but other than that it's a it's a great jurisdiction to, to go mining and and it's um, some of the lowest costs um, mining will see you'll see anywhere in the world so you've got low labor costs hydro grid power which leads to some of the lowest Mining cost environment, you'll see. So yeah, it's very mining friendly as far as the government's concerned, but they do have this sort of push towards downstream processing, which we think is actually probably not a bad idea because through our relationships with the end users, we know that they can't take concentrates, but they need a downstream process or a downstream product. And we're looking at the, the t- different battery products that we could potentially deliver. So, nickel sulphate, MHP, MSP are the sort of key. Battery products, so we're looking to to sort of process and 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 deliver into that lithium ion industry.
0: And there's a forty three one hundred one historic resource on on the asset, I believe, but it's not yet jaw compliant. What sort of size is that? And what sort of upside potential have you got from your current drilling program that uh, you're putting the results out out on at the moment?
2: So there is some historic resources been uh, done on that, that band disseminated ore body, you're, you're sort of looking at so anywhere between 20 to 50 million tonnes at, at depending on what your cut-off grade is. So there's a fairly large, lower-grade sort of resource there. The reason um, we haven't sort of put anything around out on that is because it is not yet jaw compliant and um, we need to do our own drilling to confirm that, that those numbers are real. But from our drilling, we're seeing that those numbers Probably better than, than expected. We're seeing very strong grades uh, over very long, broad widths. So, um, the other difference being is that the, the previous resource was only done on nickel. So, the previous assays were only really done on nickel, a little bit of copper, and a bit of cobalt. We're now seeing very strong platinum and palladium as well. And so, our maiden resource will include nickel, copper, cobalt, platinum, palladium, and gold. So, it really adds a potential byproduct credit and, and could really, I suppose a bit of a game changer for us because it could really change the economics of, of that band full ore oil body. And, and
0: what's the sort of representative nickel grade of the sort of drilling that you've been doing so far? Yeah, so we're getting good broad widths of sort of um, up to 1% nickel. So
2: 1% nickel in a gold equivalent sort of so that people can understand. It's about, today's prices, is between three and three and a half grams per tonne gold equivalent. So these are, these are very good broad widths at open pitable depths. So it's a great starting point. We think we can get, we can for open pit mining, we can be mining much lower than 1%. We're sort of saying that within the next six months, we'll be looking towards that maiden resource and, and scoping study. So the scoping study has started. And so we're looking at all the different hydromet downstream processes to deliver the battery nickel. So, yeah, about a six-month process to, to drill the ore body out and then to convert it into a main resource. and Okay, great.
0: What sort of numbers, magnitude, are you looking at in terms of the scope of the project? How, how much do you expect to produce? Could you yeah. talk a little bit more about the downstream?
2: We think that to justify the downstream processing facility, we need to be focused around about a 10,000 tonne per annum nickel sort of nickel units we think that we can deliver that, and that's a good starting point. So we think 10,000 tonnes per annum nickel is about what we'll start with, and there's no reason why this couldn't be ramped up towards to maybe even up to 20,000 tonnes per annum over time. So to do that, we would look at different ore bodies and, and we would sort of use the disseminated as the base load and then potentially um, blend in some massive sulphide as well So to really uh, increase that nickel uh, throughput. So the pressure oxidation Autoclav is a process that is used throughout the, the gold industry. So we can go from a concentrate through the pressure oxidation Autoclav and we can deliver nickel sulphate into the battery market. So we're also looking at mixed hydroxide precipitate and mixed sulphide precipitate as intermediate products. Uh, so potentially we can deliver one or two products into this uh, lithium-ion industry and so the sulphate being the the main ingredient into the precursor for the cathode. So mixed hydroxide precipitate is one of the intermediate products that we're uh, considering, which then can be upgraded to sulphate, nickel sulphate for the precursor for the cathode. We'll also consider cobalt sulphate as a potential product because we do have some very strong cobalt numbers that we can also upgrade to a battery product
0: okay great thanks very much could you give us a quick update on what's going on with your canadian projects
2: yeah so with with that focus towards vietnam we've we've sort of um i suppose put the canadian asset onto a sort of a slower sort of phase where we, we're just really firming up the targets before we we really get into the drilling there. The, the market is saying that it really wants the nickel, so we're sort of focused mainly on nickel, but we've done some great work out on, on the, in the field. Um, we've, we've found some really interesting uh, sort of copper gold in veins that sort of sits above the jewel prospect. So the jewel being one of the, the larger sort of IP targets, so the jewel mine... Was mined in the 1930s. They were mined very high grade gold and, and high grade copper, and we're seeing some very good copper numbers coming out of and and very high grade gold coming off some sort of dikes sort of uh, that are that are coming off what looks like a very large sulfide bearing body below the jewel mine. So, yes, yeah, some really good numbers coming out of there. But uh, at the moment, our focus is 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 more on the nickel in Vietnam. But we're continuing to refine our targets and get them ready for, for drilling
0: in the new year. And you've also got the the Silver Swan Project in Western Australia, which is right in sort of nickel alley, if you will. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so the Silver Swan South project, we're about 10 kilometers south of Silver Swan and Black Swan, which is a um, one of the the highest grade nickel sulfide ore bodies in, in Australia. So the Silver Swan was about a 10% nickel mine or nickel ore body in its day. And so we're, we're pretty excited to, I suppose, continue moving that asset forward as well. We've got some great nickel, copper, cobalt, platinum, palladium sort of in um, in soil or, or at bottom of whole air core drilling. We've also got some good gold numbers. So we're a long strike of the Kanana Bell gold mine, which is actually one of Australia's better underground gold mines. So yeah, some really interesting numbers there. We're actually under a salt lake. So what's happening in Australia, a lot of the big discoveries these days are under cover or under under these salt lakes that have never been explored. So most of the outcropping, mineralisation is, has been accounted for. So the real big discoveries in, in Western Australia are going to be made under under these salt lake covers. So we, we think that this if there is a big ore body there, and it could be nickel, it could be gold, but there's a reason why it hasn't been found until now is because we've got to drill through a salt lake and, and take bottom-hole air core samples to get a, a good understanding of what's happening underneath. So it's, it's got that potential, to, I suppose, for a major discovery, but at the moment, once again, we're sort of focusing mainly on Vietnam because of the brownfields. There. At the moment, it's all about brownfields. This market is, is very, I suppose, risk-off. And unfortunately, yeah, the greenfields targets are, are, are for another day. Now,
0: you've recently raised funds. What's your current cash position, and are you going to be fully financed for your maiden resource on Vietnam and the scoping study? Yeah, that's right.
2: So, about five million dollars at the last quarter. So, we raised four point five million at fifteen cents. Currently trading today at ten point five cents. So. It's disappointing that we're we're under the raise price, but I think a great opportunity because we are very well funded all the way through to the scoping study and maiden resort. Because we've got four drill rigs running, consistent news flow leading up into those those two big announcements. Most importantly, we're, our dollar just goes so much further in Vietnam. So we're talking at sort of sixty to eighty dollars a meter, whereas in Australia we're sort of we're thinking. We, at least $300 a metre. In Canada with, with helicopters, we were talking $500 a metre. So we've got four rigs running for the price of one in, in Canada or Australia. So we can drill this all body out for $1 or $2 million. It's, it's amazing what we can actually achieve with very small capital numbers. So, yeah, we're, we're fully funded all the way through to that maiden resource
0: and the scoping study over the next month. Okay, that sounds great. Obviously, you do a fair amount of marketing, talking to investors. In your view, what's the one thing about this company, Blackstone Minerals, that you believe that investors should be the most excited about?
2: I think this could be, and I've said it a number of times in my uh, releases, this could be a globally significant nickel sulfide ore system. As we know, nickel sulfide is some of the most difficult, or nickel sulfide in general is probably the most difficult uh, mineral to, to explore for. This was found back in the 1960s, so the the hard work has been done, and we now all we need to do now is just go through and systematically drill out all these ore bodies. So it's a really exciting period for blackstone because we we think this we're uncovering what could be a whole new nickel province, and it just hasn't been systematically explored. So with by using the modern exploration techniques, so we've just brought in our own EM crew, we've bought IP, 3D IP. We're using all the modern geophysics. We're really going to uncover something special here. So it's, um, it's exciting times, and this is the sort of thing that could be a real company-making asset for us.
0: Okay, well, good luck with that. Scott Williamson, MD of Blackstone Minerals, thanks very much for your time today. No worries. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our roundup for November. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.